One of the great things about hosting a podcast about books that features a new episode every week is that in the beginning of each season, I don't know where my reading journey will take me, but I'm game for the mystery. Joining Book of the Month is kind of the same thing. You know you're heading into new territory, and it's going to be an adventure. Book of the Month is a subscription that helps readers discover new books and helps writers by promoting emerging authors alongside established ones. Here's how it works. Each month, Book of the Month members get to choose from a curated selection of new and early release books. Your pick gets shipped right to your door, and shipping is always free. There's so much excitement knowing that one of your picks just might be that next book to make it into your top 10 most favorite books ever list. And if you like to listen to your books, there are options for you. Book of the Month just launched a curated audiobook option, and you can listen to your selection directly in the app. Here's what's in store for March. Annie Bott by Sierra Greer. Anita DeMonte Laughs Last by Sochil Gonzalez, plus several other titles. I chose the memoir Hereafter by Amy Lynn because I'm interested in how people deal with grief and bring their insights to the page. For a limited time, you can get your first book of the month for just $9.99 using the code CHIRP. You can sign up at bookofthemonth.com. This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. My guest is Peter Orner, author of two novels, two short story collections, and most recently, a mixed genre of memoir and essays entitled Am I Alone Here? In this collection, Orner explores works of literature that have impacted his life alongside personal reflections, including the dissolution of his first marriage, the death of his father, lost family connections, fleeting moments of youth, and the loss of experiences he will never have. Am I Alone Here is as much a meditation on how the fictional worlds we enter impact our lives in similar ways to our actual lived experiences. We began the interview discussing the genesis of this work. I never know what I'm doing, first of all. And, and I think with, with this book, never more so than ever. You know, I did find myself at a certain point in my life a few years ago, you know, just sort of, I'd go to work in the morning and I'd be sitting there and I just wouldn't be feeling it. It wasn't that I wasn't working. I'm always working constantly, but I wasn't, there's something not right. And I, you know, I had a lot going on in my life. So I started to take these notes down about things I was reading and it just mostly was for myself. And then this friend of mine had this website called the rumpus. And he said, do you want to write for the rumpus? And I said, no. And he said, well, do it anyway. And I said, okay, this is Steve Elliott. He's a hard guy to say no to. So anyway, I started to, you know, he started to post them on the website and it kind of went from there and it started to build. And I started to realize that some of my private musings about stories that I loved and combined with stuff going on in my life was starting to make sense. You start off, and I think it's either in the introduction or in one of the first essays where you're sort of making note that all the experiences we will never have and places we will never go and people 
we will never meet. So at the same time that you're writing these homages to these people in your life and experiences in your life and books you've read, there's also sort of like a gap in there that you're also talking about. Yeah. I mean, you're pinpointing, I think, what the book is about or what the attempt was about, which is to identify this constant search that people are often on for, you know, finding these books that they're going to love forever. And I always just wonder, like, what if I can't, what if I don't find the book that I sort of needed? You know what I mean? And what, like, and, and, and I also, I always think of the, something William Maxwell said, when he's dead, he's not going to be able to read anymore. And, and like, well, all the things he's going to miss. And I, it, that always has struck me. So I think, I think the, I was sort of, it was like a lamentation, not only for what we do read and what is important to us, but what we, what we miss because we don't ever find the books we need or the voices we need to hear. You know, I think that's the crux for me is that, you know, in a world where stuff is stuffed down your throat constantly, I'm always finding that it's not what I need. And that when I do find the book that strikes me personally, I'm so grateful. But I think there's so many things I'm going to miss. Obviously, there's loss in this book because you lost your father and you lost your first wife and whatever. We've lost our youth. There's a lot of things that you can never get back. Do you feel like some of those essays did pinpoint what you found and what filled you? Or do you think you'll always be searching? I guess it's sort of like a question of existential loneliness. I mean, if I can have both, I want both. I want what has what has gotten me through hard times. And, and I also want to acknowledge the things that will always be missed. Somebody asked me that, you know, is this the end of the story here? And I think it is, at least for the moment, I'm not going to do any more like autobiographical nonfiction for a while, if not ever. But this book, I could have written about like a hundred other things. Like these are these are stories and books that have been important to me, but there are many others and there will be many others that will help sort of define me in some way. I, I think that was the attempt, but I, I it's all, you know, there's a beautiful line from um, uh, Giacometti, the sculpture sculptor. And he said, all is provisional and that's on my wall. And I, I definitely was thinking of that when I was working on this book, that my thoughts are provisional. Well, I think in the essays, there is a loneliness. I don't know if it's only coming from you or if it's coming from the selections that you choose. I think I think what I hope the book does is make you think about the stories that have been important to you, you know, and, and sort of makes you kind of think about them. I mean, one of the things I kind of zero in on is when I read certain things, like, um, you know, I, when I finished the lighthouse I was in this canoe in Minnesota and the book falls out of the boat and it's in the water and I have to swim to get it and then I have to wait for the book to dry because I was dying to know the end of that novel and the book was so waterlogged that the pages were stuck together (laughs) and you know I, I, I was trying to capture that almost ecstasy that I felt in finishing that novel I think that I think we all have those kinds of stories don't we and I and I wonder why they're not talked about enough. And so I wanted to create a book that sort of addressed that notion is is what, you know, when and where and how books affect you. And, you know, you asked about loneliness. And I think I love being I love I I, 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 I'm not lonely enough that I think is the 
that's the answer. I, I always want to be alone. And yet I also have this, you know, weird craving for people, you know, and I think this is the tension a lot of people feel. I read to be alone. You know, I, I read to like leave. The publishing industry is a system. Books are mirrors in people's experiences. And in season two of Missing Pages, We'll take a look at what happens when an old system faces new challenges. This is what happens when you involve money. I'm Beth Ann Patrick, literary critic, writer, and your host of season two of the Missing Pages podcast, a show that gives you a ringside seat to some of the juiciest conflicts in the book world. In season two, we're turning up the dial. She wasn't pretty much a stratosphere all around. The term is academic fraud. Teachers in Florida had to cover up their bookshelves for fear of getting sanctioned or fired. We'll dig into these stories with industry insiders and talk to authors like Jody Picot for their firsthand experiences. You can childproof your world, but you can't worldproof your child. It's time we find these missing pages and return them to their stories. Listen and subscribe to season two wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest who joined me via Skype is Peter Orner, author of the nonfiction work, Am I Alone Here? I'm glad you brought up To the Lighthouse. I loved that essay. And I think part of that is because that was such an important book to me when I read it in college. I loved it so much. I'd never encountered anything like that. So I'm, I'm thinking that when readers come to this, they'll connect to different chapters in their own way because maybe they had an experience with the story or even the story that they read themselves or the part that you're talking about. In the section on To the Lighthouse, you said that you were a better reader as a younger person uh, because you were maybe more in the moment. Can you talk about that? I think the more naive you are, the better reader you are. And I, you know, for for better or for worse, I feel like, you know, the years kind of make you more cynical, more discerning. And I think when I was drunk and 21 or 22, whatever I was in that canoe in the Boundary Waters of Minnesota, I was just sort of, and you know what, I mean, like this kind of rarefied, family on the coast of Scotland. I mean, what, you know, what did that have to do with me? And yet like, and in this, uh, this, this, the last section involves, you know, Lily Briscoe trying to paint her way back into those days that she had with the Ramsey family in particular, Mrs. Ramsey, you know, all those things, like, why did that strike me so much? I mean, that had nothing to do with anything of me. And it, and it struck you the same way. And you were probably as distant in some ways from it than I was. So what it, I, I'm just trying to think about why these things matter to us so much. And I think I always like to think about when I was, like I said, where and when I was, and then I was younger. And I think I could just sort of read it without, you know, without college and professors in my head, you know, who wreck it. And I, and I say that as, as, a, as a college professor, but I feel like by, by academicizing literature, uh, we we turn people off. I think that was an attempt to get back to that sort of naive person I was, who I, again, I think was a better reader. Well, one of the things I think that's so brilliant about To the Lighthouse is is these small moments that she mentions, like all these things, all these moments of, of a day that fill, you know, one sentence that's three pages long. And one of the early essays in the book, it might even be the first one, you're talking about the bishop 
from Chekhov. When you talk about that essay, you talk about how Chekhov noticed inconsequential things and inconsequential characters. So they might be one character that seems kind of random and has this moment of awareness. And it makes you look at these small moments. And I'm wondering if when you look at small moments in your life, you look at them differently as a writer? I think it's everything. And I think what great writers do, Chekhov being, to my mind, you know, a, like the world-class noticer of all time, is, you know, you'll turn away from a book, a story by Chekhov, and it makes the world more intense in front of you. Because, and, and, you know, why, why is that? I'm, I'm amazed by that. And, and in the instance you mentioned, I mean, the bishop is dying and he's starting to sort of remember and remember noticing incredible, incredibly small things out of his life, inconsequential things. And yet they're the ones that are important to him while he's on his deathbed. And what that story does for me is remind me is just keep your eyes fucking open, you know? And that is the only thing that I think like the best on, on the only writing advice I could ever give to myself or anybody else. So what have you noticed today? Well, it's deluging in San Francisco today. And uh, I, I drove over the mountain from Bolinas and West Marin to the city in the darkness and I didn't have my glasses on. <laughs> so, um, and it was incredibly foggy on Mount Tamalpais. And I just started to sort of, um, I almost drove off the road a few times, but I was actually trying to, trying to drive into the fog. I noticed how the fog was like sort of sitting on the road. I wanted to be like in it. I didn't want to get out of it. I wanted to literally to sort of get lost in it while at the same time not driving off the cliff and dying. I don't know if that's really <laughs> noticing something, but I was like, fog is really this amazing, like physical thing. So I was thinking a lot about that today. Like literally, so I could have gotten out of the car and like hugged it. It was that, it was that thick and that physical. And I, I don't know that I'd ever really noticed that before. So when you, when you decided, okay, I want to put Kafka in here or I want to put William Trevor in here, did you sort of think about William Trevor first and then think about what that brought up in your life? Or did you think about something in your life and then think, oh, William Trevor talks about this too? It, it, depended, on, it depended on the piece, but I, usually there was something going on in my life that reminded me of a story I'd read in the past. In the case of Trevor, I was having this recurring nightmare about running over a little girl. In, a, in my car when I was 20 something. You know, I couldn't literally for the life of me figure out why I was dreaming this. And I was really actually genuinely concerned that this was something that was based on something real. It was strange because then this was going, this went on for a few years. And I, I then came across the Trevor story again. I kept dreaming this dream. And then I realized it was from this Trevor story that I had read years and years before. That's how that one happened. So I think each one, I think I would say each essay has its own individual genesis, that there wasn't anything consistent about the way that I was going about this. 
You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest who joined me via Skype is Peter Orner, author of the nonfiction work, Am I Alone Here? So throughout this book, there's kind of two things going on in your personal life. There's the end of your marriage to your ex-wife, who is called M, and there's the death of your father. When you were writing about these people and this loss, was it cathartic for you by the time you were done? Had you moved emotionally from one space to another about either of these losses? As much as it pains me to admit it because I, I think I say that writing isn't cathartic to me. And yet I think sometimes we feel this need to have other people, in my case, readers kind of give you a little bit of the weight (laughs) that I, that I'm carrying around. And maybe that is cathartic, but I, I, you know, I kind of, you know, I'm, I'm very against like writing as therapy, you know, and and that idea, I'm just not sure that that makes for good writing. I think, I think it's gotta be more difficult than that. It can't just be to make you feel better. Um, sometimes it can make you feel worse. Maybe it should, you know what I mean? And, and so, but I think by the end, as I was rewriting these essays in light of what you're talking about, these two major events in my life, I think I did come to an understanding of what I didn't know about those people in, in a good way. I think I thought about how things had been, but I also realized the limitations of what I knew about them, if that makes any sense. But you also wrote at some point in the book that too much peace makes you nervous. Yes. Yeah, I don't want too much peace. Writing should be disruptive and agitating making. You know what I mean? And, and even when it's a you know, memoir, yeah, I, I think I don't want to read a book to feel better. I want to read a book that's going to make me think and make me make, make things even harder to understand because I think that's the way things are. You know, mental illness, I lived through, you know, vicariously a pretty harsh time, a really hard time in my life and certainly my ex-wife's life. And, you know, and, and she's doing fine now. And, and I'm very grateful for that. But I was trying to capture how hard it was in the moment. You like reading that makes you uncomfortable, that makes you think. So I yeah. wondered if there was an essay in here that you wanted to talk about. It can be ex- exemplary of that or something else. The, the Kafka essay that you talked about really gets into what was hard for me to revisit. And um, I'll just read. What follows is an aside, the reasons for which I hope will become clear in a moment. Cut to that time not long after my marriage collapsed, I found myself lonely, bewildered, and above all, exhausted. So I decided that what I really needed was a weekend at what people used to call a nudist colony, but are now in California called clothing optional retreats. If there is an almighty, omnipotent God, even he wouldn't have known what the hell I was thinking. Though I told myself all I wanted to do wanted to do was to be alone for a while, I must have been hoping to meet someone. Why else would I have gone to a nudist colony? The minute I arrived at the place, which has since burned to the ground, it did, it burned this past year. I knew the whole mission, whatever my motivation was, was turning out to be one of my more harebrained ideas. The less people are wearing, the more shell-shocked I generally become. After the long drive up north and being stuck in that, and being stuck in that place for at least a night and needing right away to get away from all that competitively exposed flesh, only in America could clothing optional turn into one-upmanship 
I hightailed it fully clothed up to the top of a mountain where I found a thatched hut with two yoga mats side by romantic side. The hut was new, but built to look weathered and authentic. It's good a place as any. And I decided to hunker down on a yoga mat. I stretched out on the mat and did a few moves I thought resembled yoga before cursing myself for not bringing a book up here or at least some drugs or a shotgun. I stared up at the roof of my hut. I tried to will a sense of quietude amid the redwoods. I sat cross-legged and tried to imitate meditation. That didn't work either. And as you said, too much peace makes me nervous. I must have been up there for at least an hour staring at the thatch, ruminating on the multiplying effects of failure when I was joined by a chatty, bearded guy wearing nothing but hiking boots and a thong. So tell me what that has to do with Kafka. Nothing. (laughs) Except that uh, it reminded me. I mean, I ended up having, having a conversation with this thonged guy that I didn't want to have. But then by the end of the conversation, I realized that I kind of did want to talk to somebody, even this guy, even this, you know, dumbass hippie in a thong, you know, and uh, what was that mean about hippies? I'm sorry. Um, but uh, while I was thinking about this, I remembered, as I often do, I read Kafka's diaries all the time. You know, the book sits on my desk. They're, his diary entries are some of the most incredibly weird and beautiful things in literature. And he often in that, in his diaries, talks about the tension between his great need for solitude and his need to be alone to do his work versus his desire to be um, out in the world and socializing with his friends, which he had many of, and his fiancés, which he also had many of. He was a serial fiancé acquirer. And uh, I just thought what an interesting, um, parallel, you know, and I thought I could relate, you know, in my constant need to run away and then my constant need for people. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest who joined me via Skype is Peter Orner, author of the nonfiction work, Am I Alone Here? So at at one point in um, in the book, you are writing about your uncle Harry, and he's a kind of an audacious character. And you say in that essay that all stories are fiction. And then two essays later, we have the cover of a story by John Edgar Wideman that says all stories are true. So tell me about that. <laughs> I mean, I think they kind of go together. You know, all fictional stories are true. All, all There's a and let's say all good stories are true. All good stories have some element in them that, you know, that where you can find some light shed, you know, as opposed to a story that has like a, maybe a cheap ending or, a, you know, an easiness about it that goes down easy, but is not memorable. And I would say that a story that you remember, there's something in it that, kind of had, again, had some sort of illumination about it. And um, Weidman, it's an old African proverb that he took that from, all stories are true. You know, and I, I mean, I think I, I'm just thinking about it. I mean, just think about why would, it, why would somebody bother repeating a story, you know, and, and oftentimes again and again and again. There's some reason for that. And I think there is some, you know, the word truth and true kind of gets thrown around a lot, but you know, if it has any meaning, it's because these stories are telling us something we need to know. 
I feel like you get deeper and more vulnerable and revealing as the book moves towards the end. And I don't know if you think that, but I'm just assuming that you didn't write these in order. So how did you, how did you get that overall sense and feeling to the, to the book? And how did you, if, if you had to, did you fill in? I rewrote it like about seven times like from start to finish after the essays were done. And that sounds drastic, but that's how I work. <laughs> and so I really kind of, you know, I, I wanted that, what you say, you know, I wanted to have at least try for that. I mean, a book of essays doesn't actually by nature lend itself to that, but I want this, I wanted it to be somehow different than, than what that would suggest. And so, yes, I, I think that was deliberate and I was, writing to that so they 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 were created independently and you're exactly right they weren't written in order by any stretch but they were rearranged and then rewritten to speak to each other so my favorite essay is just dialogue between you and your ex-wife and you're visiting her at the mental ward is that something you filled in later it's a something i was thinking about for from the moment it happened i remember being in the parking garage after that day till the moment I, you know, finished the book finally, you know, so I was rewriting and rewriting and rewriting that, that moment. Can you tell us what that moment is since maybe people haven't read this? So my ex-wife was uh, hospitalized numbers of times. And um, uh, the scene that I describe in the book, um, uh, she had been, this was long after we had separated and she, um, was back in the um, hospital and I just went to visit her. This is after, um, you know, a few years, I, I hadn't seen her. And uh, so I just sort of described that, um, you know, that what that was like, you know. And it was a, you know, it was a nice, it was a, it was a hard visit, but it was also, I think um, there was a connection that we were able to make. When you look at the title, it says, Am I Alone Here? has a beautiful question mark at the end. So are you? Yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, I think in spite of everything, I still feel that way. And again, I, to me, it's a positive thing. That's a question too. You know, I, that might change tomorrow, but I feel, even though I'm surrounded by, you know, people that I love and who love me, you know, that I think there is this, as you said, this sort of existential is a big word, <laughs> you know? But it's a, it's sort of a useful one because it really, you know, it has to do with existence. And I think we don't exist truly with other people. I think our brains keep us separate. Ultimately, we're separate, separate graves. But I think, you know, I think our brains sort of keep us there. There is stuff that you can never share with other people. And I, I, I revere that. And so I, you know, I think it's not a necessarily a, um, a uh, negative. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest who joined me via Skype is Peter Orner, author of the nonfiction work, Am I Alone Here? Can you read a passage from an author that speaks to you or influenced you as a writer, which is going to be interesting to see what you pick since this was all about your influences? Alistair McLeod is a Canadian writer who passed away about a year ago, I think, maybe two years ago. And this is from a story called The Boat. He writes about Cape Breton. What I love about McLeod is that 
he wrote about a story every few years in his life. And every single story he wrote and every single sentence he wrote is worth it. And, you know, what he teaches me is, is, you know, take your time, make it worth it. Um, Don't rush it. Um, And so he never did. And and I think we're all better for it. This is a a couple paragraphs from a story called The Boat, which was his first published story, 1960s. On November 21st, the waves of the gray Atlantic are very high and the waters are very cold and there are no signposts on the surface of the sea. You cannot tell where you have been five minutes before and in the squalls of snow you cannot see. And it takes longer than you would believe to check a boat that has been running before a gale and turn her ever so carefully in a wide and stupid arc with timbers creaking and straining back into the face of the storm. And you know that it is useless and that your voice does not carry the length of the boat, and that even if you knew the original spot, the relentless waves would carry such a burden, perhaps a mile or so by the time you could return. And you know also the final irony, that your father, like your uncles, and all the men that form your past, cannot swim a stroke. The lobster beds off the Cape Breton coast are still very rich, and now from May to July, their offerings are packed in crates of ice, and thundered by the gigantic transport trucks day in and day out through New Glasgow, Amherst, St. John, and Bangor, and Portland, and into Boston, where they are tossed, still living, into boiling pots of water, their final home. So why did you choose this? Just because it's so great. I mean, the, the, the rhythms and the music of McLeod's language, and this is a story about the death of a father, and it's one of the most devastating stories of that kind that I know uh, he's just so careful. I mean, if you, if you stop and examine each of those sentences, they're each one of them, you know, the repetition and the, um, the use of, and the way that the way that he builds. And I, you know, it, it, I could have picked literally any paragraph, any two paragraphs from, from his, uh, his two books, Island and no great mischief, two books. Um, but very few people have had as much impact on me as, as him. Can you read something you wrote? It could be something that was tricky or changed a lot from the first draft. In the end, my father took up such little space. This is what I can't seem to get over. He'd never been large, but he'd always had a thick bear-like solidity. My father was the sort of man who could block a doorway. It seemed an overly cruel joke to take away what was little left of his now tiny body. He wasn't asking much by then. In fact, he wasn't asking anything at all, just a McDonald's milkshake once a day. And my father didn't even ask for that. I just knew he liked it. He'd fumble for the cup with both his hands and fall back asleep with the striped straw in his mouth. I've had my share of father figures, including a great writer of fatherhood, Andre Debuse. When Andre died in 1999, I cried my eyes raw. And I remember standing in line at the wake and reaching his oldest son, Andre III, who pulled me close and whispered, We just have to walk through the hole he made. I've clung to those words for a long time, but my gone old friend might have been the first to say it. Ah, well, there are father figures, and then there are fathers. Fathers, Andre might well have said, are a whole hell of a lot more trouble. He knew from his own experience. But now that I'm bewildered, now that I'm a bewildered father myself, I'd like to call him up in Haverhill, Massachusetts right now and say, wait, wait, so what is a father? 
And I imagine Andre sighing into his beard and laughing and leaning back in his wheelchair and thinking about this, drawing on the faith that sustained him in the worst of times. Let me get back to you on that one. So tell me why you chose this. Well, I, I think I rewrote this, you know, many, many times. And, you know, I was trying to, you know, and I, I think a lot of people have experienced this, right? I mean, your your parent who looms so big in your life and then you see them emaciated in a hospital bed. It's really shocking. You know, it's so universal. I mean, my father ends up being this ordinary dying person. I was like, you can't die. You're you're this uh you're this character that I created. You know what I mean? I uh, you know, and again, it, it was more like it became a universal experience. Like this is something everybody, you know, I, I thought, my God, I'm like, this is my family's normal. I don't know if I'm making any sense, but I was trying to capture that idea of somebody who, who was so big in my imagination. And then like, there he was, you know, I remember just his, like his head was so much bigger than his body. And that was just so shocking to me everywhere, everywhere. I, you know, walking around um, in the car, my desk is in the basement, in the garage, but I, I'm always working. So, and what do you do, or where do you go to get away from writing? I don't. <laughs> I wish I could. I try everything. If I'm running, I I sometimes stop and have to like you know like go into a store and get a pen to write on my arm. So I, there's no escaping it. Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? Uh, my my long suffering partner Katie, who's a writer herself, Katie Crouch who doesn't allow me any bullshit at all. And so that's helpful, very helpful. Um, and then uh, uh, my poet friend, Nick, who um, can smell a bad sentence a mile away. And he can smell an insincere sentence a mile away. So both of them help to keep me honest. And how have you dealt with rejection? By not believing it. I mean, my mother always said, you know, don't believe criticism, but also don't believe praise. And so if a story is accepted or not accepted, it's like either one or sort of unbelievable. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? You just can't, I, yeah, I don't, I chalk it up, both of them. And what is your favorite word? Shriek. You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. My guest who joined me via Skype was Peter Orner, author of the nonfiction work, Am I Alone Here?, as well as two novels and two short story collections. You can follow First Draft on Facebook. Just look for First Draft, a dialogue on writing, and click like, and on Twitter at First Draft APR. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. Thanks for listening.